Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here tonight uh, because we are simply hungry for, for you, and we're hungry for your word. And I pray that this time would be a time of edifying and teaching. It would be a time of giving us strength, a time of, of building your body, building the church. Um, and for each person here, Lord, that you would have a word for them. Um, and work in us tonight, Lord, as we, as we worship and, and study your word. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick review of chapters one and two for those of you who are not here and also just to get us into chapters, chapters three and four. Uh, chapter one and two are basically two big events. Um, the history of Esther is lining up with the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was basically ruling um, from about four, well this begins with about 486 BC, and then it goes until about 330 BC. Was anybody else confused about that, by the way, when you were in school, when they talked about BC history and it went like, it went back, back, and you're like, well that's going forward. I always messed with my brain. Anyhow, if it messes with yours, we're in good company. So, the Medo-Persian Empire, of which the head of the, the, the Medo-Persians at this time is Ahasuerus, which is the same as Xerxes I. So Xerxes is on the throne. He's been having these big parties these, and, and trying to convince people to be part of the military campaign. And um, during one of these parties, he invites his wife to, uh, to kind of show her off. She refuses. His wife's name is Vashti also known as Queen Amestris. And she refuses to come, and they, they, they're, they're, he's angry, he's upset, he's merry with wine, as we read in chapter one, which is usually the, the beginning of bad decisions. And they decide to depose her, to get her off the throne. They say, We're, she's not gonna be queen anymore. So that's basically chapter one. Chapter two, is four years later, after Xerxes has led a, led a failed military campaign into uh, the Greeks. He, he tried to defeat them. He lost. He's come back. And his associates tell him, hey, now what are we going to do? Let's get you a new wife. And so they parade all these uh, beautiful women, young girls, young virgins, um, and he has to pick a woman that pleases him. Um, and he ends up picking Esther. Esther is a Jew who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and she was in the region. Uh, the Jews are at this time post-captivity, so they're after the Babylonian uh, conquest. But so, although some of the Jews have gone back to... That's going to happen again tonight. Great. Um, <laughs> that's, I'm always fighting this thing, so um, it's part of the part of the humor of the evening. 
Where was I? Oh, yes. The Jews have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, we, of course, see that in the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but some of them have decided not to go back. And these are those who have stayed in Persia. And we're focused mostly on Persia and the city, the capital city of, or the, the citadel city of Shushan, or also known as Susa, which is very close to Babylon. Anyhow, Esther is picked to be uh, the queen. And at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, her cousin, who is now in the inner court with King Xerxes I, has discovered a plot against the king. He reports it to Esther. They find out that it, yes, was, really was a true plot to murder the king. And they get rid of these guys. And that's how chapter 2 closes. So, let's open now in chapter 3. By the way, that was a great summary, don't you think? Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Right, okay. Just wanted, to, just wanted to put that out there. Right. I was like, I think I got that right. <laughs> okay, chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus, now again, that's Xerxes I, promoted Haman. So now we're introduced to yet another character um, in the story. Oh, and by the way, can, can someone turn down the AC? I think we may have forgotten to do that. It's quite hot in here. Um, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Now, I want to point out one interesting little thing here is there is a command of the king, but there is no mention that this is a law that has been put into place. We talked about this several times last week. The Persian law was a very sacred thing for their culture. And once it was in the law, it could not be rescinded. And we'll see why that's so important in a variety of things uh, within this book. But here again, the king is a, has commanded this, but it has not quite become a law. So Mordecai will not bow or pay, or pay homage. And now we see in verse 3 what happens when he has made this decision not to do this. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates, excuse me, within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. So obviously they're talking to him and on Monday, hey, Haman went right through here and you didn't bow or pay homage. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tuesday, hey, you didn't bring donuts and you didn't bow or pay homage. Wednesday, we didn't bring you donuts and you still didn't bow or pay homage. So they're daily talking about this. This is like the, this is I guess their water cooler moment for the people in the king's court. And now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman. So they're like, they're kind of getting frustrated here. And they're like, well, someone's got to tell this new guy that's been, been, um, given this new position. And they finally tell it to Haman to see whether, whether Mordecai's words would stand. Isn't that interesting? 
There's a, there's, there's a testing going in here. They, they're trying to find out, is he really going to be able to get away with this? For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now this is very, very important because in chapters 1 and 2, there had been very many times a mention that Mordecai did not want anyone to know that Esther was a Jew. He had told her many times, don't reveal it. Don't do it now. But in this situation, for the first time in this whole book, the, um, that we are told that it's finally revealed, that Mordecai tells them the reason why he's not bowing, and it's because he's a Jew. Now, I'll get more into that and in, in some of the history in, in just a few verses here. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. So it was pointed out to him. He didn't notice this himself, but he finally started to notice. And you, you, know, you know when people begin to point things out to you, you start to kind of be like, oh, you're right. Who here has noticed people at work not um, honoring them, paying homage, and bowing before you? Have you ever noticed that work? Yeah, I mean, what's up with that? Lots of people, right? So anyhow, they're, they're noticing that. And Haman now notices that, and he is really, really ticked off. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. And instead, Haman sought to destroy... Now look, look what he decides to do here. Instead, um, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, let, just let that sit for a minute. Instead of dealing with the one person with whom he has a problem, he decides that he wants their entire people group to be destroyed. Now, we're talking about the whole kingdom of Medo-Persia. This is going from India to almost Greece, and then down into the Middle East and Northern Africa, 127 provinces. And it's been estimated that the number of Jews that lived in, this, in, these, in these provinces at this time was close to 15 million people. That's a lot of people. And so he jumps from this one guy ticked me off because he didn't do what I wanted him to do to let's kill every person that's related to him along ethnic and religious lines. That is insane. That is absolutely insane. But that begins to kind of unveil some of the things that are going on behind the scenes in the kind of spiritual aspect in this book. And truly, just as with your lives now, you, you all live lives where you can see and hear and touch certain things that are happening. You're aware of conversations. You see people's reactions. You see things happening in our society, in our culture. But behind them, at the same time, is a spiritual reality. There is the moving of the Holy Spirit in every single situation. There is God's will um, being done and accomplished in many, many ways. And all this is happening at the same time. And as I noted last week in the book of Esther, you know, this, this book is interesting because it does not name God at all. There's no mention of Yahweh. There's no mention of, of 
people and their faith. Or The only thing we see that ties us into the God of the Bible is the word Jew. This is the, this is the highest example of, of uh, mention of God in the entire book. And it's as though the book is like showing us a glove of history, but we don't see the hand in the glove. And that's really what it means to understand God from the perspective of his providence and how he moves in history. We see the glove. We see the things that are happening in our lives, but we often don't know that the one who is manipulating the glove or or moving the fingers, that is God himself. And so think of this from a spiritual perspective. Who else would be moving and convincing somebody who was offended to then cause 15 million people to perish. Well, there's another part of the spiritual reality, and that's not just God. It's also, who else? Satan, right? Spiritual forces of evil that are happening at the same time. And this helps to unveil that this is definitely going on because this is not, it, not even close to a rational uh, a way of dealing with even uh, harm or jealousy or envy or anything of that nature. Well, moving on here. Now, in the first month, verse 7, which is the year, which is the month of Nisan, not the car, just to clarify. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, and that's where we get the Jewish holiday, actually, Purim. The, 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 um, the word Pur in, uh, in, in, in Persian, it, which means lot. And they cast it before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then, king, and then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the others, other people's laws, and they do not keep, keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain." If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now notice, when he's talking to the king about this situation, he doesn't say, hey, by the way, it's the Jews. Or, hey, by the way, it's this people. He just says, there's a people who have some disagreements. Don't you think we should get rid of them? Now, if somebody came to you saying, I think I have an idea, and I want, to, I want to take care of this situation, wouldn't you ask for a little bit more detail? Like, now, who are these people again, and why do you want to destroy them, and, and how many people are we talking about? Xerxes asks none of these questions. He's just listening to a person that he thinks he can trust, and then he says, let's go on with it. And the guy offers to pay him 10000 what are they, they called? 10,000 pieces of silver, talents of silver, which is about two-thirds of an annual salary at this time. And he's, paying, he's offering to pay money to do this. And so he says in verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Notice he doesn't say who the people are because he doesn't know. They're given to you 
um, to do with them as seems good to you. And let's stop right there. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to fill in within the history of the people here that are that's quite important. Um, and we're going to start off with with Haman. Now, Haman. And by the way, whenever this is read in a um, strictly Jewish situation, and they read through this, um, whenever the word Haman is mentioned, the people who are listening to the story being told, they always go, boo. So I think we should try that a little bit, right? It would make you stay awake, uh, frankly. Um, So whenever Haman, yeah, is, is mentioned, He's, he's noted at, not just as his name, which is Haman. Ooh. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> Wednesday night studies. There's just something about him. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, Ooh. his lineage is also mentioned, and he is known as the son of Hamadatha, but then he's also given his heritage, which he is, he is an Agagite. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Who were the Agagites? King Agag, that's not a great name, Agag. Wait, what did you say your name was again? Agag. A guy? No, Agag. Are you sick? No, it's Agag. Okay. Okay, King. Fine. Oh, man. There's just something about the Hebrew language, right? It's just <laughs> Last week, there was a guy named Carcass. I don't know if you guys remember that. One of the eunuchs, Carcass. Man, it's awesome. Hope to get to meet some of these people. Okay, so an Agagag. So King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were very much enemies of the Jews going back to a time of the Exodus. In fact, when the Jews uh, were, were escaping uh, from the Pharaoh and going through the Red Sea, and they were starting to come into a portion of the Sinai Peninsula, because of course they didn't make it all the way yet. And we're studying now what happened because they didn't. Um, they were actually stopped and attacked by the Amalekites. So even though they were like running from, for their lives, basically, the Amalekites had it out for them. And since then, God kind of Kind of put on the the uh, on the on uh, within the scriptures that he would be against the Amalekites because the Amalekites had decided to do this terrible thing and King Agag was the king or their leader. Now, fast forward on to the time of Saul, and I think I mentioned this last week, but Saul was uh, a Benjamite, and so is Mordecai. So this is kind of interesting detail. So during the time of of Saul, the Amalekites were to be attacked and they were to be destroyed as well as uh, all their livestock and animals and all this stuff. And the story goes that Saul was, was leading the attack and he, he captured them, so he, he had victory, but he didn't kill the nicest of the animals and he also spared King Agag. Samuel the prophet uh, then comes on the scene and says, hey Saul, how's it going? That's a paraphrase of the Hebrew, of course. And, um, and he, he hears the bleeding of sheep. Not bleeding, bleating of sheep. And he's like, what's this sheep I hear? He's like, oh, I saved these sheep for the sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel gets really upset because the, 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 um, the command was to get rid of them. And for good reason. 
because of all that they had done to their people. Well, he doesn't. Samuel actually ends up getting Agag himself and kills him. But somehow the Amalekites are still able to survive. Because we even read about this, so that was, that's in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15 with Saul. But we even read about in, in 1 Samuel 30 that David later has a battle with the Amalekites. So obviously some of them have survived. Um, in fact, we read that an Amalekite claims to have killed King Saul in the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1. So why then do you think the text is pointing out to us about Haman the Agagite? Oh, <laughs> all right. You guys are paying attention even more than I was. I'd forgotten about our little deal. At some point, I may have to cut you off if you take advantage too, too much. So what's being pointed out is that he comes from a lineage of people who have, who have hated God's people and who have done them harm over and over and over and over again. And I can't help but think that, that Mordecai, again, a descendant of, of the Benjamites and a, a relation to Saul somewhere along the lines, that he's thinking to himself that he knows that the Agagites and the Amalekites have been historical enemies. And now this Agagite gets elevated and he has to bow before him. And I think he makes this decision, I know what, I'm just not going to do it. You know? And I, I've, I saw what happened to Saul. He kind of compromised. And I'm, not just, I'm just not going to do it. And so he, he, he draws a line in the sand, doesn't it? And it's interesting, because of this one man's line in the sand, all this other stuff then begins to happen. What's unveiled then is not only his disdain for this one man, but this one man, Haman. Yes, you're enjoying it almost as much as I am. Then turns and decides to destroy an entire people group. And I want to kind of point this out for, uh, for sake of, of this discussion. The entire rest of the book of Esther hinges on the emotional reactions of two men. On one side, we have Mordecai, who is realizing an entire history of offense and decides simply that he is not going to give honor to a single person. Notice he doesn't say that he's going to hate everyone else, or he doesn't say that he's not going to do other things of the king's dictates. He's just not going to give honor to one person. That's his decision. It's somewhere in him is saying, I can't do it. I'm, not, I'm deciding I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give honor to this person who, has, who comes from a, a people group who has, has hurt um, my people so many times. And then we have the emotional reaction of Haman, who decides after being insulted that he's going to go after 15 million people. Now, just, just think about that. Two emotional reactions. Two emotional reactions. And this whole thing unfolds because of that. What do you do when your emotions cause you to lash out in a fiery temper to all those around you? Do you begin to say to yourself, I'm, I'm speaking to you guys specifically, do you begin to say to yourself, you know what, I think I might be overreacting a little bit, right? Have you ever heard of the word overreacting? Never. A couple of you. A couple of you. There's, there's reacting, 
And then there's overreacting, right? Reacting is like, eh, I, I prefer this guy not uh, uh, dishonor me. Overreacting is, I'm going to kill all your people, kids, children, everybody, in 127 provinces, in the most pop, uh, you know, at this point, the most powerful nation in the world. That's called overreacting. And I think we, we need to kind of always keep a pulse on our emotional reactions to things. We always have to keep a pulse on that because emotions are given to us by God. And they're a great thing because they, they can help us to discern the truth. But if we let our emotions become the driver of things rather than something that is kind of part of communication, part of how we receive information, they can cause us to overreact in crazy ways. And this is what Satan loves to do with human beings. He loves to touch some kind of nerve that's going on in your life and cause you to just spiral out of control. Anger, hatred, plotting, scheming. So we have to be, be very careful with our emotions and, and what they do to us. Anyhow, again, this shows that there is a lot going on spiritually behind the scenes. In fact, some people have, have even gone as far as to say that Haman... Okay, that's starting to lose its steam there. No. <laughs> See, even I can emotionally discern that, right? I'm, I'm trying not to overreact, but it's hard. Um, so some, some have related that Haman is a kind of... Um, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to call him Mr. H from now on. H. Don't overreact, okay? Um, so that Haman is a type of the Antichrist, actually. Because Haman was given power, and then what did he do with that power? He immediately abused that power. And then when we read about this in the book of Revelation... Uh, and the, what's known as the man of sin. You can read about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of sin who is revealed in the hour um, of the end times. And in Revelation 13, we read that Satan will actually give power to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a person who rises to power on the earth. He gives power to him. And then later, he is actually defeated and conquered by Jesus and confined to the lake of fire. And not to ruin the story, but that pretty much was what happens to Haman. He abuses his power and then it comes back and he is, he is cut off. So it's an interesting parallel to the man of sin or the Antichrist. Um, J. Vernon McGee has said this about the issue of the Jews in history. That although at all times the Jews have existed and they've gone through an incredible amount of opposition, right? In every single generation. We think, of course, most, uh, most currently World War II, of course, and the Holocaust. Just an, an entire tragedy in human history. And, and really so close to us still as far as the time. That a madman by the name of Hitler tried to wipe out an entire group of people. In fact, I don't know if you guys have done uh, much, much, much study on, on Hitler in World War II, but... In, in his, he wrote a book while he was in, I think he was in prison, um, called Mein Kampf, uh, which means my struggle. And in there, Hitler talks about the fact that he is seeing things going on in his country and he begins bit by bit to point blame 
at the Jews. It doesn't start all at once. It snowballs. And by the end of his writings, he is firmly focused that he has found the real problem in the nation of Germany. Now, he's absolutely wrong, but he's convinced himself of this. And I can't help but think that Haman, okay, is kind of like that character. I mean, think about it, 15 million people. We know in the, in the Holocaust, six million Jews were killed. And this, this kind of tells us something, that, that at any point in history, Satan is gonna be going after the people group through whom and through which the Messiah is to come, and his, God's chosen people. He is set against this, and whoever Satan can set on fire to go against God's chosen people, he will do that. He's basically, Satan is always waiting for somebody who's just ready to overreact and to just go, just to flip out. He's like, let's see if we can get this person focused on the Jews. And then these are the kinds of things that happen. So anyhow, a little brief history about things that are going on behind the scenes. In a practical, um, in a practical way, I also want to point out this. When you have power, when power is given to you, as you, as you transition from uh, a young adult to an adult, you get jobs, positions, authority. As, as you become a parent, you know, things of authority are kind of given to you. An excellent way of kind of determining where you are in your character as far as following Christ is just to see what do you do when you have power? Do you tend to use that power for the benefit of other people? <clears throat> are you bringing others up using that power? Or are you having a tendency to abuse that power? Every single person has to deal with this issue in their life. What do you do when something is given to you of authority? And this, of course, tells us that we have to be very careful with what we do, what we do with those things and kind of tying in with our whole uh, emotional things. Albert Einstein is, is quoted as saying this, about growing in success or growing in power and authority. Try not to become a man of success or a woman of success, but try to become a man of value. And that's a really beautiful saying, don't you think? What do you do with the authority? What do you do with the power that you have? He says, become a person of value, someone who is helping, someone who is bringing up, someone sewing back into the lives of those who are around you. So, anyhow, back to the text. So, all this is happening. There's all this stuff behind the scenes. And, of course, God is behind the scenes here, too. He's, he's preparing this kind of conflict, and he's going to use it for his glory. Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each, over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to, and just look how clear this is in, 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 a, in a very disturbing way, to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. That's astounding. 
astounding. And that day would be on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and then to also plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law. Notice that word, it's very important. This was a law. The king's command, not so much. This was written and it could not be revoked. It was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now notice the end here. Uh, the law has gone forth. There has been a decree, and the king and Haman, they sit down and have a beer. After deciding together that they're going to try to exterminate 15 million people, we just made a law to kill little children, <laughs> and they sit down to have a drink. If you make a decision like that and you just decide that you're going to go out to dinner afterwards, you've got some serious emotional <laughs> problems going on, because it tells us also in that text, what are the other people's reactions? The people in Susa, the people in Shushan, they are perplexed. Their life has just been turned upside down. They can't believe that such a law has been passed. And can you blame them? Absolutely not. Moving on to, uh, oh, I, actually I want to focus on this. This is something that Satan loves to do. Satan loves to take a single person's error and then project it onto everybody else who has nothing to do with that original error. He loves to just blow up one person's error and apply it to a bunch of other people. Contrast that with how does the Lord deal with our error? How does the Lord deal with your error? Thank you so much. The Lord deals with our error in such a gracious way he usually comes knocking. Hey, Jeff. Uh, you, you shouldn't have reacted that way. And he just tells me, between me and him, he's so polite. How can the Lord be so polite with us? He's so polite. He deals with the error one-on-one. -on -one. Has the Lord not dealt with you and your errors one-on-one? -on -one? Has, has he always broadcasted? To he doesn't do that. He simply deals with things one-on-one, -on -one, fixes the error, helps us to repent, and move on. Satan does the exact opposite. He likes to dig up the error. He likes to throw the mud of that error onto other people. He likes to cast blame onto other people and just build a fire. This is Satan's way, and it is exactly the opposite with God. And I, am, for one, am so thankful that God is that way, that he's a... A personal, private, helpful, kind, small voice, you know? How many times has the Lord yelled at you? Many. He'll get, it, he'll, he'll get my attention, but I don't think he usually yells at me. He's, he's, he's so patient. He waits for me to realize the error of my ways, and then he's kind of like, yeah, I was kind of trying to show you that for like six and a half years, you know? <laughs> And then, I, and then I'm like, 
hey, I, I finally took care of that problem. And the Lord's like, yeah, six and a half years later. Um, but he's, he's just, he's so good to us. He's so good to us in the error, in the, in the, in the area of our error. And I, I just, we need to be very thankful that uh, the way that the Lord deals with us because it's exactly the opposite of how Satan deals with people, digging up their sin, showing it to you, casting it before you, causing you to be guilty, and, and then causing a lot of other fire to happen that should not have. Let's move on to chapter 4. So picking up there, when Mordecai, verse 1, learned all that had happened, of course, about this law, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, which is the traditional kind of Jewish way of responding in, in anguish and, and, and sorrow and sadness. Uh, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Mordecai has revealed that he is a Jew, but now he's really revealing that he's a Jew because he is walking in a very public place right up to the king's gate. Like they don't allow any sadness within the king's gate, obviously, but right up to the gate, you know, he is moaning publicly. He is sackcloth. It's just like, like wearing, uh, you know, those sacks that like that coffee comes in, what's like burlap? It's like burlap and ashes. So he's like, he's like publicly showing everyone how sad and upset he is. And he's going right up to the king's gate. He's not hiding himself at all with his opinions and beliefs. And remember, he's now in the king's court. So he's a pretty public figure to be doing this. And so Esther's maids and eunuchs, verse 4, came and told her, now they came and told her not that there is this law, but that her cousin was basically making a scene. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. So she's like, what are you doing? Don't get dressed like that in public. You know how sometimes a wife will tell her husband, you can't go out like that in public. Well, she's basically doing that with Mordecai. You can't do that. I'm the queen. Put on some clothes, you know. But he refuses. And remember, she doesn't know what's going on yet. Then, verse 5, then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Why are you acting this way? Why? What's going on? So Hathak, now there's a go-between. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. That's an important detail. He's saying, this guy hates these things so much that he's promised to pay from his own resources uh, to have these people destroyed. And he also gave him a copy of the written decree. So somehow he got a copy of this thing. The written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him, which means to, to make a, a, a big request and plead before him for her people. So Hathak goes out. He explains to him what's happened, gives him the law, the decree. Remember, this is the law that cannot be revoked. 
And Hathak then returns, verse 9, Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Now notice Esther's response here, verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants, now this is, this is her reaction. It's not, oh no, or oh, there's so many people that are going to be hurt. She starts by addressing where she is in her situation. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, so this, is, this was the protocol, he has but one law. Notice again that word, law. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So it's been a full month since she's even seen the king or been called in to, to be with him. And so they told Mordecai Esther's words. Now before we get to the, the, uh, the kind of these epic verses, verse 13 through 17, notice what's happening. Esther finds out that her cousin is acting wildly outside the gates. She sends clothes and the person to go find out. The person finds out, comes back, learns this, these terrible things, and Mordecai is, is telling her, you've, you've got to go You've got to go do something about this. You've got to go change the situation. You've got to do something. When's the last time somebody came to you, whether it, it doesn't have to be obviously as, as grievous a situation as this, but said, you've, you've, got to go, you've got to go do something to help me. You've got to go in there to help me. And her response is, like most of us, well, <laughs> Well, but, but, but what about me? <laughs> but what about what will happen to me? This is our common response when we're called to do something that we know is going to be hard to do. What's going to happen to me? Now, Jesus, of course, refers to the me of all of, all of us all the time. And the word he, he commonly gives to us is this. If you want to live, then you need to die to yourself. That's never easy to do because it's dying. <laughs> it's the hardest thing for all of us to do daily. It's the hardest thing for people to do in marriage. It's the hard for, hardest thing for people to do in friendship. It's the hardest thing to do in relationships. It's the hardest thing to do in family. It's the hardest thing to do in business. It's the hardest thing always to do but it's always, always, always the most blessed. The most blessed. And we always need to be encouraged to die to self because the self <laughs> rears its angry head a lot. It's always crying out for self-preservation. We're concerned about what will happen to us. And Esther is a, is a prime example. She, she explains, but you don't understand. You don't understand what's going to happen to me. What's going to happen to me if I have to go in there? Now remember, she's the queen. She's the one who is the closest to him. She's the one who was chosen by him to be with her. And Mordecai 
is making this request because he knows something needs to happen here that only she can do. And notice his response. His response is a, one of the most pastoral responses that you could ever read in Scripture. Notice his response here, verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. So he's not even talking to her person to person. He's, he's sending this to a go-between. Do not think in your heart. The heart is where you do most of your thinking, by the way. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. He's saying, it's going to be found out that you're a Jew, and if this law is in place and you don't do anything about it, your head's on the block too, despite your position. Because this law, again, that is so severe in the Medo-Persian culture, cannot be revoked. He says, don't think this in your heart, that you're going to just escape because you happen to be the queen. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. This is one of the most amazing statements in Esther about the providence of God. Mordecai clearly states here that if she does nothing, it doesn't mean that the Jewish people will never be rescued or saved or that, that God won't do something to save them at some other time. He just simply makes this comment. Though God will do this and he will rescue his people, what are you going to do? And then, of course, the most famous sentence here, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that, of course, is the head verse of the entire book of Esther, for such a time as this. Now, you can feel the conviction, you can feel the pastoralness of Mordecai's response, you can feel also the logic and the understanding of the providence of God in the, in the glove of history through his response. And I love this. I just love listening to these words. I've read through these words now, I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks, and every time I read through them, these verses, 13 through, through 17, if there's anything I could encourage you to pray through in, in the book of Esther, it would be to pray through these verses for yourselves. Because I think it is very important for us to remember that this, for such a time as this, applies, of course, specifically to Esther, but it applies to you and to me. Guys, in, in the annals of world history, COVID's not that big a deal. There was the beginning of time, start, there's the end of time. There's all these kingdoms and stuff that happen, right? I'm not going to write all of them, but here we are somewhere probably here. Medo-Persia, MP. Looks like a D, sorry. Medo-Persia. And then the end is coming. Here we are, the US was founded here. This is an incredible world history course. Aren't you glad you took it? 
<laughs> um, the Romans were over here. Anyhow, you get the idea. And here's your life. You're only here for a short time. And then your time will be up. You only have so many days and so many hours to spend. And then your days and your hours will be up. I love playing board games that have the old-fashioned uh, uh, sand, right? This little, what's that called? Hourglass. The hourglass, thank you. I'm guessing it's probably because it used to take an hour, right? An hourglass. <clears throat> I'm a quick, quick, quick study there, aren't I? <laughs> um, and I, I love it because it really, oh, now it's making me think of that daytime TV show, The Days of Our Lives. You guys remember that that has an hourglass on it? Yeah. I remember back when I was a kid, when I was homesick, that would be on in the middle of the day, and I'd be like, this is the worst television ever. I would watch Sesame Street in a minute compared to that stuff. Anyhow, I digress entirely. Um, that hourglass is, is a great example of your life because at some point the sand's gonna run out. Now thankfully for you and I, we know that eternity is not only in our hearts as it says in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, but um, it's also a reality for every person. We have eternity waiting for us, but at the same time that we have eternity waiting for us, we only have right now to make decisions that will affect eternity. Now we all know that the, the greatest decision in our time, the greatest decision that we have is the decision to follow Christ, to accept him as Lord and Savior, to make sure that we have, we have kind of conducted that business with God, to make sure that we have been saved and set free from our sin, that the, that the blood of Christ washes us so we know that we have a heavenly inheritance. But we only have the now within which to make those decisions. Now matters. These days, these hours, these minutes, they matter. And Mordecai is simply pointing out, look Esther, you're just right here. And you've been elevated to be a queen and you were an orphan. Don't you think that maybe you've been given this position for a bigger purpose and reason than just being the queen of Xerxes? And the same thing needs to be thought of with us. And it doesn't matter how high up the ladder you get. It doesn't, you don't have to be a queen or a king or a CEO or whatever in order to kind of get this lesson. Wherever you are, that's where you are for such a time as this. To invest in the people who are around you. To pray for the people you work with. To be poured out. As a drink offering, Paul would say. I mean, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And Esther is getting this message from Mordecai. Hey, listen, 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 Esther. You are, you've been given this. You are where you are for such a time as this. Now, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. And, I, and this, is, this is such a beautiful reaction. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. She says, go get, go get all the people of faith that you know, Mordecai, 
and asked them to pray and to fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And my maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. She's against, makes this very clear. Which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. You know, um, until this point in the story, we read of, of, of somewhat of Mordecai's faith. We, we read that he has drawn a line in the sand, that his, his heritage and who he is as a person has caused him to make a decision not to honor Haman. But now we read for the first time about Esther kind of being religious, or Esther really being really forward with her response to the situation. She says, go and, and make these people fast for three days for me. And I think that's so beautiful because, you know, she could have just said, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I'm not going to make this decision. I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I haven't been called in for 30 days. You don't realize how hard it is for me. Any number of excuses could have been shown her, and, and, and she, could have, she could have willingly accepted them. But she doesn't. She decides, if I perish, I perish. Is that not a healthy mindset to have as we approach this world? It's, this world can be so scary on so many levels, guys. But to have in your mind, if I perish, I perish, is not a bad idea. Because guess what happens if you perish in this world? You go straight into the hands of Jesus Christ. Straight into his hands. And the more firmly you believe that, the more firmly you stand upon that, this perishing thing, this dying to self thing, it's not nearly as big a deal. And she begins to act in a spiritual way, a spiritually mature way, because she begins, as her first reaction, she doesn't say, I'm going to go to the king right now. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. Sometimes we, are, we have a, a tendency in, in kind of religious zealotry to, uh, to say, well, we're going to go do this now. No, the first thing she decides to do after making the decision to do something is to fast. What wisdom is there in that? That when God shows you that you have to do something, the first thing you need to do is not go figure it out on your own, which we are so prone to do. Oh, God wants me to, to, to preach the gospel? Well, I'm going to leave right now and go do it. Maybe you should pray and ask God how he wants you to do that, when he wants you to do that. Maybe you should study scripture so that you know what the gospel actually is and what scriptures can be given in the moment um, for the Holy Spirit to use. No, she resorts to prayer and fasting. What a beautiful thing that is. And she asks her maids, we don't, we don't read anything about are her maids Jewish or anything, but she says, my maids and I will do this. Go gather all the people of Shushan and do this. And he goes and does it. And thus ends chapter 4. 15 million Jews are hanging in the balance of, of the prayers of these people. There is a tremendous shaking in the community because of this, all this stuff that has happened. And now, a beautiful thing emerges. The faith of a woman emerges. Her relationship with God emerges. There's a famous saying in a passage by the uh, preacher 
uh, Spurgeon. And he said this about dealing with things and with reality of when times are dark. And I'll leave you with this tonight. Spurgeon said, I believe that in dark times, God is making lamps with which to remove the gloom. Martin Luther is sitting by his father's hearth in the forest when he sees that the Pope is selling his wicked indulgences, the beginning of the Protestant movement. He will come out soon and stop the crowing of the cock of the Roman Christ-denying Peter or the Pope. John Calvin is quietly studying when false doctrine is most rife and soon he will be heard of at Geneva. And a young man is here this morning. He's preaching. He's speaking to his congregation. Someone is here today. Someone is listening to this. And I do not know whereabouts he is, but I pray that the Lord to make this to be an ordination sermon for him or for her, starting him on his life work. I feel as if I were Samuel at Bethlehem, seedlings for David, to anoint him with a horn of oil in the name of the Lord. The Lord's word is for us to emulate, to imitate, to learn from and to be empowered so that we also can take with us the if I perish, I perish. The understanding that the Lord will always have a way for his people and also a decision that for such a time as this, I am here, Lord use me. This is a classic Lord use me. This is the same kind of Lord use me that we read of in Isaiah. When he, when he, was, when he was there and the, and the voice was heard, who will go? And Isaiah said, here I am. Here I am. This is Esther's here I am moment. And the Lord is always calling to his people. And he waits for us to respond. Here I am. Use me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for much fruit from the reading and the studying of your word. For these gathered here, I pray your, your power, your maturity, your love, your spirit to be poured out upon them. That they would go forth in their lives and also make the decisions like Esther made. That they would say, here I am, Lord. Use me. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.